Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Alexander DeSanctis of National Review is in for Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives. And we are brought to you today by NetSuite by Oracle. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide entitled Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get that at netsuite.com slash martini. But there's also great services that go along with NetSuite, and we'll talk about those in just a little bit. But on to the good martini here, Alexandra. And for that, we turn to the pages of the New York Times. Attorney General William P. Barr has assigned the top federal prosecutor in Connecticut to examine the origins of the Russia investigation, according to two people familiar with the matter, a move that President Trump has long called for, but that could anger law enforcement officials who insist that scrutiny of the Trump campaign was lawful. John H. Durham, the United States attorney in Connecticut, has a history of serving as a special prosecutor investigating potential wrongdoing among national security officials, including the FBI's ties to a crime boss in Boston and accusations of CIA abuses of detainees. His inquiry is the third known investigation focused on the opening of an FBI counterintelligence investigation during the 2016 presidential campaign into possible ties between Russia's election interference and Trump associates. The department's inspector general, Michael E. Horowitz, is separately examining investigators' use of wiretap applications and informants and whether any political bias against Mr. Trump influenced investigative decisions. And John W. Huber, the U.S. attorney in Utah, has been reviewing aspects of the Russia investigation. His findings have also not been announced. So, Alexander, I think the best news here is that uh, nobody's going to be able to say, you never even looked at that. Bob Mueller only looked at uh, what the Trump campaign was doing, possibly, in connection with Russia. Nobody investigated the investigators. So, as as Bill Barr said in his uh, hearings uh, a couple weeks ago, we don't know if there's anything illegal here, but there was spying, and we need to find out why. Oh, absolutely. I think this is great news because I almost wish it had happened sooner. You know, while I think the Russia investigation absolutely needed to happen, I think that it's good that the Mueller report was published. People can read it, can see, even though, you know, first of all, there wasn't any provable collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. At the same time, there was clearly some unsavory stuff going on. So I think it's for the best. That's all out in the open. And I think the investigation would have happened um, regardless of, of sort of its shady origins. But at the same time, it seems like there probably were some shady origins, something bad going on in the way the investigation started. And so I think it's important to reveal that not only because the truth matters and because people deserve to know, but also because it'll just absolutely kill the talking point that, well, we never looked at how the investigation started, so we don't have to talk about anything unsavory that might have happened in the Trump campaign. And uh, possibly, I think there's a fairly good argument that uh, Bob Mueller should have looked into all of this stuff. But if he had, the investigation obviously would have taken a whole lot longer and would have dragged out and we would have gotten all sorts of uh, political finger pointing for quite a while, possibly even uh, through the next election. But uh, we'll see. Um, I- I'm sure there'll be plenty of media outlets today, if they haven't already, talking about how Mr. Uh, Durham was chosen by President Trump's hand-picked attorney general, as opposed to the way all the other attorneys general are picked. So Right. Yeah, I'd love to know what the alternative would be. But you know, from what I've heard, I think Durham's a kind of a straight shooter, a hard worker, and I'm sure we'll um, deal with a lot of flack for being the one to, to do this investigation, but seems trustworthy from everything I can tell. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at what the New York Times says that he's investigated here, including the CIA abuses of detainees. Uh, I don't remember that being uh, real popular in conservative circles during the Iraq war, whether he's talking about Abu Ghraib or uh, other aspects of uh, what happened during the war on terror. So, Alexandra, 
we'll find out what uh, Mr. Durham discovers, what Mr. Horowitz discovers, what Mr. Huber discovers, and what Mr. Barr discovers. One thing that everyone needs to discover, though, if they're a business owner, is what your numbers are. Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their whole hodgepodge of business systems. A lot of people have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, which takes up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide entitled Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get that at netsuite.com slash martini. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash martini to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash martini. All right, Alexandra, on to the bad martini now, and let's go to Late Night with Seth Meyers on NBC. He created a few headlines by vigorously defending Ilhan Omar when Meghan McCain was on the show, I think it was last week. And uh, Rashida Tlaib has also ruffled a lot of feathers with some of her comments, most recently having some deeply revisionist history about how the modern state of Israel was created in the wake of the Holocaust and World War II, suggesting that the Palestinians at that time took on great sacrifices in order to deliberately accommodate uh, the Jews coming to Israel. But Rashida Tlaib is standing by her comments. Two different clips here from her interview with Seth Meyers. First of all, she's doubling down on her version of what happened with the modern creation of the state of Israel. The reason why Israel was created is to create a safe haven for Jews around the world. And there is something, like, in many ways beautiful about that my ancestors, many had died or had to give up their livelihood, their human dignity, to provide a safe haven for, for Jews in our world. And that is something that I wanted to recognize and kind of honor in some sort of way. But I also think it's important because I want Palestinian people also to find some sort of, you know, light in this kind of what's happening, but also... You know, in the end, I said, I want all of us to feel safe. All of us deserve human dignity, no matter our backgrounds, no matter our ethnicity, no matter even our political opinions. We all need deserve that kind of equality and justice. And, uh, you know, for me, I wanted to uplift that and, and bring that to light. So the reason that some of her ancestors and, and others died was because they were trying to kill the Jews who fought back and killed them. That's why they died. So deeply revisionist history here. But what she says at the end sounds pretty good, Alexandra, because she's talking about everybody having equal justice and everybody being treated fairly and, and so on. And then she immediately goes to this. You know, I got a text message from a friend who's like, hey, next time, you know, really clarify, maybe talk like a fourth, fourth grader because maybe the racist idiots would understand you better. Um, um, so it's just, you know, I will continue to speak truth to power and continue to uplift my grandmother uh, through love. Uh, and that's all I can do is continue to share the human impact of what it means to be Palestinian in the occupied territory. We all just want love and justice. And if you don't see it my way, you're a racist idiot. Alexander. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. I almost can't believe those quotes. You know, I was sort of nodding along and thinking, you know, I know her her policies aren't quite right. And this is probably, you know, 
dignity for everybody is really just a code word for, you know, support the one state solution and whatever else. But geez, that second quote, she didn't even pause, right? And went right <laughs> into calling the people who disagree with her racist idiots. So not really sure what we're supposed to believe here. With her and uh, Omar, uh, they say what they mean and then they get called out on it and get upset that they get called out on saying what they mean. And uh, round and round we go. What do you make of the fact that the Democratic leadership is essentially asking and urging and even demanding that Republicans apologize to Tlaib for allegedly taking her quote out of context as opposed to uh, condemning Tlaib. And, and they're referring to her original statement, not the racist idiot quote from late night TV last night. But uh, ever since that first resolution that really didn't do anything condemning Ilhan Omar's anti-Semitic comments, the leaders have just decided not to fight this in their own caucus anymore. It's deeply frustrating because I think, you know, the new tactic on the left, I guess it's been around for a while, but I've been seeing it so much more recently with these new freshman congresswomen in particular. The tactic is I say something dumb or indefensible or wrong or offensive. And then if you criticize me, you're trying to silence me. You're the problem. You're inciting violence against me. You're inviting harassment. You know, Republicans are the bad guys because they're criticizing me. And they they frame it in this guise of, well, I have free speech rights. um, So therefore, don't criticize me or point out how I'm wrong. That's not what free speech means. No one's saying you're not allowed to talk, but we're allowed to criticize you. And it's not inciting violence against you to point out why you're wrong. All right, let's go on to our crazy martini now, Alexandra. And if there's one thing America needed, it was a 22nd Democratic presidential candidate. At least that's the official tally. I know there's some fringe people like Mike Gravel and Marianne Williamson, although she just qualified for a debate. So I don't think know that she's fringe anymore. So the official count that I heard this morning is, is 22. And Harry Enten over on CNN was talking about how Steve Bullock uh, nationwide is pulling at 0.5%, 0.3 in Iowa, and a good old flat zero in New Hampshire. But he's just starting, so we'll see how much uh, traction he can get here. But here's an interesting free beacon story from just last Friday about this supposedly moderate Democrat. Montana Democrat and expected 2020 presidential candidate Steve Bullock vetoed a bill that would have ensured newborns who survive abortion receive life-saving care. Governor Bullock vetoed the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which was passed by both chambers of the Republican-controlled legislature. Bullock, who did not respond to requests for comment, became the second red state Democratic governor to block such protections after North Carolina's Roy Cooper vetoed a similar bill in April. His decision comes as he prepares to enter the primary. This was just last week that Bullock did this, which means it was a pretty good sign that he was planning to run for president because this is apparently uh, a must-have position if you're going to seek the Democratic presidential nomination, even though Bullock's whole shtick is, hey, I'm a Democrat from a state that goes red for uh, presidential elections, and I can speak the language that these Trump voters speak, so I can reach them in a way that all these other Democratic candidates can't. But in the end, uh, his position on abortion, whether he's just pandering to the base or it's what he really thinks, sounds a lot like this guy. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, The infant would be delivered. uh, The infant would be kept comfortable. uh, The infant would be resuscitated if if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. And that's Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who's still in office, by the way. Uh, Alexandra, what do you make of Bullock uh, joining the huge pile of candidates and the fact that he appears to uh, have the same position on uh, born alive infants uh, as a lot of these other folks? Oh, it's absolutely insane. I mean, first of all, the fact that he's running is just, I can't keep track. 22, 23. I, I don't know the difference anymore. I don't know who to trust on the number. There's just far too many people running, although it is somewhat amusing to watch them try and scramble to uh, you know, fight over the same donors. But 
Um, I, I don't understand why he's running for president and not for Senate. It would make much more sense, you would think, politically uh, to try and challenge Steve Daines for his seat. Um, but here we are. And in this point on Born Alive, I'm glad you brought it up because not only is he out of step with just the average American on this point, but he's out of step with Democrats. Seventy percent of Democrats, according to a poll commissioned a couple of months ago by the Susan B. Anthony list, 70 percent of Democrats support protections for born alive infants. I mean, this is not an abortion issue. Senate Democrats tried to talk about this as being some kind of anti-abortion law. It's not. It merely requires medical care for any infant born alive uh, after an attempted abortion procedure. So essentially, you, you treat every newborn infant the same is what the bill does. And this guy vetoed it. And I think that says a lot about, obviously, that he he hopes to win the primary somehow by some miracle, but also of the fact that in order to be competitive in the Democratic primary, you have to deny medical care to unwanted infants because they were supposed to have been aborted a minute earlier. What does it mean for the actual election, though? Because my my thinking is, is that, as you just said, a lot of Democrats think that Democratic politicians are going way too far on this. But their animosity towards Trump would make me suggest that they're not likely to flip from a Democratic candidate whose position on abortion they abhor because they're more interested in changing the occupant of the Oval Office. No, I think that's right. And I don't think there's necessarily um, as many single issue voters on abortion as, as I might hope. Um, and I think those Democrats who probably do favor born alive bills, that's not the top issue on their mind when they're going to the ballot box. But I think in terms of the primary, Democratic candidates are very right to assume that huge groups like Planned Parenthood and NARAL are going to come out, you know, drop the hammer on them if they so much as deviate from what's now the party line, which is to just not only support abortion until birth, um, but to allow, you know, the, the neglect of unwanted infants if they happen to survive abortion. Alexandra, I want to get your thoughts on another thing that's happening in conjunction with all of this, because I think it came up in that very same CNN uh, conversation last week where uh, the lady said that uh, if you're pregnant, you don't have a human being inside you. Chris Cuomo was jumping to her defense in that uh, conversation that also included Rick Santorum, who was obviously pro-life. And the argument I heard from Cuomo and from a lot of other pro-choice folks is that you can't name a single state that legalizes the killing of infants after they are, are born, whether it's after a failed abortion attempt or otherwise. So it's just a big red herring that pro-life folks are, are, are sending out there. What do you say in response to that? No, it's not. And I think this is a, a very tricky line because it's the difference between directly killing a newborn infant and not affirmatively being required to provide care. That's the difference. There's no federal law right now. I think more than 20 states, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but some significant number of states don't have a bill requiring doctors to provide medical care to these infants. And so if they're they somehow survive an abortion, there's no requirement at all that they get the same care any other infant would. So while it would be illegal, in my understanding, under federal law to directly kill that infant, say, with a lethal injection, there's no reason why doctors have to provide care to them. And that's that's the whole debate. That's why that argument is a complete obfuscation. Are they going to have any hope of being able to tack back towards the middle? Because I remember in 2016, President Trump very effectively in the third debate made the abortion question about partial birth abortion. And while it's hard to say how many votes that changed, Hillary Clinton's defense of partial birth abortion certainly didn't seem to help her in that situation. If you've got folks now saying you don't have to help infants who are actually outside of the mother now, I know we just talked about how you're not going to necessarily get people who lean Democratic to, to flip based on that one issue. But folks who are swing voters might be a different story. I don't know. I think so. And I think on top of that, it, it motivates Republicans a lot more. You know, the Supreme Court was a huge issue in the last election. I think a big part of that was because of Roe v. Wade and because of just how radical our abortion rights regime is. So to see the left going so far uh, in the other direction on this issue, I think definitely makes a lot of people maybe who would otherwise not like Trump very much um, just kind of hold their nose and, and take the plunge. 
Congratulations, Steve Bullock, and your effort to stand out from the field. You made yourself exactly like all the rest, so good, good luck with that 0.5%. Alexandra, great to have you here again today. Talk to you tomorrow. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Alexandra DeSanctis of National Review in for Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Don't forget to visit our friends over at NetSuite by Oracle. Uh, they've got the business systems, the business management software that will really get all of your business numbers in order. And you can also get that free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash martini. And tune in again Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.